On this episode of Trading Camp, we interview Markets and Mayhem. He talks about developments from the first half of 2023, remaining disciplined in the face of an ever-changing market environment, and shares thoughts on what he's paying attention to into the end of the year. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Scooter, the next generation of trading tools that will replace everything you know about trading. Built by engineers for the retail trader, Rocket Scooter's revolutionary algorithm is the first of its kind. It uncovers institutional positions and reveals market maker risk and hedging in real time using their AI scanner and algorithmic charting. Rocket Scooter has invented 15 unique indicators that predict high volume before it happens, allowing you to visualize price levels where big money is most interested. There's nothing like it. To see how Rocket Scooter is changing the game for retail traders, check out their three-month pro trial. Right now, they are offering three months of Rocket Scooter Pro for only $35 a month, knocked down from the original price of $179 a month. Take advantage of this monster deal by heading over to the link in the show notes and get started using Rocket Scooter today. Trading Camp has partnered with Elite Trader Funding, a proprietary trading firm focused on giving traders the opportunity to profit from the markets without risking their own capital. ETF offers a range of evaluations which test your abilities as a trader. When you pass, you'll be able to choose from funded accounts ranging from $10,000 to $300,000. The only risk is a monthly flat fee. The ETF community provides an excellent learning environment and networking opportunities for those serious about taking their game to the next level. We are excited to offer our listeners 30% off of any trading evaluation on ETF's site except for Fast Track. This episode is brought to you by Kane Capital, a trading community over 25,000 strong featuring live trading alerts and educational content. Link in the notes to join for free today. It's so hard for me to sit back here in this studio looking at a guy out here hollering my name when last year I spent more money on spilled liquor in bars from one side of this world to the other than you made. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheel of dealing, limousine right, jet flying, and I'm having a hard time holding the other day. Ain't about that life. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Trading Camp Podcast, episode 83, about to get underway with markets and mayhem, one of our favorite super excited to have him back on the podcast it has been just over six months since we had him on the show back in january time flies and a lot has changed in the market we appreciate ma'am anytime he gets the opportunity to join us because he's full of knowledge and always willing to share not only with us but with you guys so fired up to get this thing going noah what's going on brother alejandro what's up um episode 80 Three or four? Is it three? 83. There you go, 83. Um, this is Mayhem's fourth time on. That represents like a 5%. Um, it has to be higher than any other guest. So 5% of the time we have Markets of Mayhem on. 5% of the time we're all getting blown away by new knowledge and new facts. And so I'm super excited to get him back on again. Um, and I'm sure that this time will be no different. Excited to dive into how this year's gone so far and what the rest of 2023 could potentially look like. Let's get into it. All right, Eminem, welcome to the show, brother. Gentlemen, it has been too long. Thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, a lot has changed. We're going to have a lot to talk about on this episode. But first, just want to ask you in general, how have things been? Your trading uh, with TraderAid, how are things going for you guys? 
Everything's going really well. I think uh, we've been navigating throughout this pretty well. We found some great opportunities and commodities and bonds and currencies and pair trades and various equity markets that have allowed us to produce some alpha. We've also been adding to the capabilities that we have at TraderAid. We've got some unique tools to visualize zero DTE options and the whole S&P options chain inside of Bookmap. It's a unique tool that's actually exclusive uh, and we'll eventually probably be put, putting it out there in the Bookmap marketplace. But essentially, Essentially, we're, we're having a lot of fun there. I also just started a new project since we last talked in February of this year called Macrovisor with my partner, Aisha, that you guys have interviewed as well. She sends her best, by the way. And we're talking about, you know, the big picture trading themes and deriving uh, potential trading opportunities from some of those trends that are changing underneath the surface. And so it's it's fun because TraderAide really looks at the short to intermediate term and then Macrovisor picks it up and takes it from there all the way to the long term to the investing side of things. So it's like kind of filling out both sides, but we know we're catering to slightly different audiences where there's some degree of overlap, but not a lot, surprisingly. And so it's been really cool. And so in that respect, been keeping busy. Trading's been going well. Um, business and startups have been going well. You know, what's been weird is Twitter. Like ever since Musk took over, everything has been very weird on Twitter. So I will say I've noticed that. And, and for small publishers, it hasn't been amazing. A uh, big drop off in traffic for every small publisher, unfortunately. And uh, so it's, it's necessitated a lot of folks to to reinvigorate uh, how they market and how they find clients, including us. But overall, I think it's been great. It's 2023 has been an awesome year. It's There's been a lot of surprises along the way, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And, uh, you know, I don't have any complaints. I'm looking forward to the, the second half and seeing how it all plays out. Yeah, Twitter's been super weird, super weird. I feel like I come in every day and I've lost 20 followers. They're just Oof. like trimmed off of the top of my follower number. And I'm like, oh, all right. Like, I guess it's just all the bots getting trimmed and... I don't know, whatever's going on there. But yeah, the traffic has been a little weird. Uh, maybe my tweets just aren't that good, but uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. No, I, I see the content that you both put out. I think that you guys put out great stuff and you're, you're very generous with sharing your ideas and your knowledge. But I'm going to tell you something. There's something wrong with the algo. There's something wrong with the engagement. And there's something wrong with discovering content. You go to your feed, you don't find what you want under the for you. It's like everything you'd never wanted to see. Oh my gosh. And then you go into the yeah. yeah. And then you go into the following thing, and it's all chronologically ordered with no implication as to how like valuable is this information. You used to actually be able to go in and find knowledge. And that's what got me into Twitter. That's how I met you guys. That's how I met a lot of great people. And it kind of saddens me that that element is sort of being put in the background and now it's become sort of a noise factory for all sorts of crazy nonsense. And it's been harder for me to find, like if I'm looking on my feed, I don't see you guys. I have to like find your page to see your content. Mm -hmm. And if we're not engaging with each other every day, we drop off organically. We're not even like in the same bubbles anymore. Everything has changed a lot and I just don't think it's for the best. So for folks that are listening out there, like, you know, there's there's definitely going to be other venues that take shape. Maybe over time, we'll find another place where financial conversations can happen and they can be more constructive. But it seems like Twitter or X or MySpaceX or whatever we're gonna call it, <laughs> it, it just isn't working out the same anymore. So it's just it, a little bit of melancholy there, a little bit of nostalgia there looking back it's bittersweet um but i i just wish that it would get better from here because it was such a great platform to exchange knowledge and meet people and and offer information yeah i don't i don't know when my for you page went from like it it slowly transitioned you're right it was like around that like early 2023 time where like it slowly transitioned from like here's some things that you want to watch out for you know in this um in this upcoming bull market and then a fight video and then immediately back to 
um, hey, here's what NVIDIA did today, and then immediately back to another fight video. It's kind of crazy <laughs> how like the, the, the algorithm sort of works. Um, maybe I have to w stop spending so much time on fight videos. I don't know. But um, yeah, I would, I, would, I would love to, uh, to dive in here. So let's, let's get after it. Alejandro, go ahead. All right. So let's talk markets. We mentioned earlier the last time that we talked to you was in January, and things certainly looked and felt wildly different. Sentiment was wildly different. Stocks were, of course, priced wildly different. And you had a bearish view coming into this year. I listened back to our last episode earlier today, and you talked in particular about parts of the market that you uh, found to be attractive, parts of the market that you found to be unattractive. And for the most part, you came into the year expecting equities to perform similar to how they did last year or just to simply underperform. And specifically, we talked about the 60-40 portfolio and you said that the 40%, which is, of course, is the bond allocation, uh, would be somewhat attractive to you, but that the 60% would be worrisome. Uh, and that is, of course, the portion allocated to stocks. So I want to ask you, as we have moved along through this year, and I will say, when we had that discussion in January, you said something that was very important and you said, okay, I'm going to take this one quarter at a time. And you kind of spoke on what you felt uh, that we would see in the first quarter of the year. And obviously things have been shifting and moving around very, very quickly. But going into that first quarter, what was the landscape like for you? Why was it that you felt that stocks were going to underperform, especially some of those high beta names? We specifically talked about ARC and how you found that area in particular to be something that you wanted to stick away from uh, or stay away from, and also tech that you felt would underperform and that some of those names were going to trade lower. So what were your thoughts at the beginning of the year and how have things changed as we progress through that first quarter and now into the middle of the year where the NASDAQ has had an absolute rip off of the lows and the S&P is, of course, uh, performing extremely well. Yeah, I think that at the top line level, the indices look great. You know, when you look at the market cap weighted stocks, everything uh, that's driving the market cap weighted indices, they've had a pretty stellar run, particularly the NASDAQ. Underneath the surface, when you look at the equal weight, it's it's a bit of a different picture. They're not necessarily performing the same way. There's a pretty big disparity, which means the rally really hasn't broadened out. Underneath the surface of the rally, there's more multiple expansion than improvement of fundamentals. So I would just foreshadow everything I'm going to say with that. But going into the first quarter, um, what I saw was that we had a very intense monetary policy tightening cycle, both in terms of runoff of the balance sheet and the amount that rates had been raised. And that was likely to put some pressure on the economy and in particular, uh, some parts of the financial system. And we did see that it was ameliorated through intervention, but there was the beginning of an unraveling happening in the banking system, particularly in the regionals. And while there have been facilities put up that have helped to forestall some potential unwinding there, I wouldn't necessarily say we're out of the woods completely. And so an example of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank towards uh, the end of March, I want to say, was sort of the beginning of that, where there's a lot of these banks that have pretty big mismatches between their assets and their liabilities. In fact, about 50% of banks have more liabilities than assets. So what the problem of Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic Bank, although they were different issues, these are not rare issues where the overall uh, takeaway is that there is some potential risk there. And if there was more stress to their book, that risk could be amplified. So going into the year, some of these things were a bit 
um, on my radar. I wrote something in Macrovisor as we were starting it in early February saying, you know, there are some cracks underneath the surface of the economy. And actually in that article, I called out several things that were pretty key themes. And then I expanded on it later in TraderAid as it pertained to short-term trading. So the key themes here were this. First, money supply was beginning to fall. Now we had been at a very above trend level of money supply expansion, and that had helped to support some of the economic growth and the recovery we had seen from COVID, but it was beginning to fall year over year for the first time since the Great Depression. Now it wasn't the end of the world, but it was a concerning sign. Positioning was starting to get stretched. We also saw for the first time since uh, the great financial crisis that there, and really since COVID, the crash there, that there was some decent sized borrowing at the discount window of the Fed which kind of reinforced the idea that, okay, something might not be great with the banks. Then we also got data from the FDIC that indicated that banks had about $675 billion of unrealized losses at FDIC uh, insured banks. So we could see there were some signs that something was not great with the banking system. And we we're seeing that expressed elsewhere with the liquidity in some of the key areas of the credit market. And then finally, we also started to see um, another bit where the buffer of capital at these banks was at the lowest percentage level since just before the great financial crisis. Just looking at the overall U.S. banking system, they didn't have the cushion to withstand any kind of uh, significant pressure. So walking through what had happened since the start, really the first quarter of 2022 through the first quarter of 2023, was one of the most rapid tightening cycles that we've seen in 30 or 40 years, which caused the long end of the yield curve, the underlying assets that price with that yield, to drop considerably value. So banks that had mortgage-backed securities or treasury bonds or commercial real estate debt or otherwise, were seeing pretty big markdowns on some of these assets, some of which were held to maturity. And held to maturity is fine, right? It's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government when you're looking at a mortgage-backed security that's a Fannie, a Freddie, or a Ginny, or a, uh, a treasury. That's, you know, as long as the government's good on their money, that's going to be paid off at 100 cents on the dollar when it matures. But what if you get in a situation where your depositors want more money then you have assets to liquidate at their current value. Well, that's exactly what these banks were dealing with, including Silicon Valley Bank. And so the, the extent, the velocity of the cycle and the extent of the tightening cycle led to such a big haircut. And these banks weren't hedging. And in many cases, they didn't have access to interest rate swaps anyway. So we come away in a situation where only about 6% of bank assets are actually properly hedged. That led to some serious vulnerability. And along the way, you know, when we were in this era of financial repression for about 14 years, where interest rates were super low and liquidity was ample, getting any kind of income in fixed income required participants to go way out on duration, which means longer and longer length to maturity and also higher up on the risk spectrum. You know, so there was less appetite, perhaps, for a two to five year treasury, more of a 10 or 20 year treasury and more appetite for mortgage backed securities as well. So banks populated their balance sheets with these things because that's the only way they could really get a decent yield. And then they paid zero on deposits. But as the Fed hiked, these these variables began to change. Depositors were looking for better yields at competing banks, money markets or treasuries. So deposits started to flee. And then you also had on the other side, assets were losing value because of the Fed's hiking cycle. So coming into the year and then looking more and more underneath the surface, that was one of the things that was driving my concern are sort of the tertiary and secondary effects of Fed hiking. What is it going to do that we don't anticipate? Where is it going to hurt? What could potentially break? And some of the plumbing started to break in March and April. And so that was kind of the crescendo moment. And I was out there on Twitter. I was actually one of the few people on the weekend of the Silicon Valley bank failure saying the market's not going to crash. 
Like they're going, <laughs> they're going to come in and probably stop whatever is going to happen. Um, and there was a lot of doomsayers saying, you know, we're going to have this Black Monday, everything's going to zero. But at the end of the day, the Fed, the Treasury, the FDIC actually stood up a facility that allowed banks to cleanse their balance sheets, for one. And secondly, every bank that failed was wound down very expeditiously in a clean way. It made other depositors at other banks feel somewhat safe that all these banks were being wound down and depositors in excess of the FDIC threshold were being covered. So I would say this, if the government did not step in, there were a number of different areas where there were actually pretty significant pockets of vulnerability in that liquidity-driven crisis. Now, having seen the government step in and the Federal Reserve spin up the bank term funding program, which allowed banks to take qualifying assets to the super discount window, as it's been dubbed, which are things like mortgage-backed securities that are issued from agencies, so it has to be federal government mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, they can take those things in that might have had a 20, 30, 40% haircut and get 100 cents on the dollar, but they're going to be borrowing at a rate of about five, five and a quarter right now. So banks have been doing that, and they've been lending out capital at appreciably higher rates for mortgages, for uh, auto loans, for other areas of the market. And so we've seen some, some interesting changes in behavior. It's actually not what the Fed probably wanted, by the way. When we go back to the Federal Reserve meeting that happened uh, just as the banking crisis was playing out, one of the things that Powell hinted at was, well, bank tightening will do our job for us. You know, their, their tightening of credit conditions and, and limiting of availability of loans will help to slow demand, and that will do some of the work of monetary tightening. <clears throat> Excuse me. The reality has been the opposite. The banks have actually use that bank term funding program to expand their lending and try to improve net interest income, which we've seen in their earnings over the last uh, quarter. So it's it's actually been pretty interesting. So I'd say we had the moment where there was some pretty significant risk off. Things got blown way out of proportion to the downside, just like they did in October. And we put in another interim low in that March-April sell-down, and then we started to see the market become more liquid again. But the other theme that I identified back then, and this is a really important driver that every listener should pay very close attention to, is the role that zero DTE options play in setting market pricing at the top level at the S&P, which is sort of the largest options market in not only the U.S. equity market, but really the entire world, but also within ETFs and single stocks. But zero DTEs are about 70% of notional value uh, traded, you know, every day is within options, right? And then about 43% is within zero DTEs or options that are going to expire in six and a half hours or less. And the size that is trading hands in these zero DTEs is incredibly large. It's about $600 billion of notional trading hands every single day. It's enough to make the tail wag the dog, whereas the derivatives are actually moving the underlying indices more than they ever have before. And there are certain things that have helped to contribute to this, including and not limited to expirations on every single day, first for SPX, you know, for starting with you know, we had monthlies and weeklies, then we had Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then we had Tuesday, Thursday, so we had every day, and then they did the same thing with the triple Q and the SPY. This options activity has been fascinating because, look, what's been happening as the Fed's been hiking is the cost of margins gone up quite a bit. So if you're holding leveraged long positions in futures, you're getting killed on your margin. But if you're closing out your book every day and you're playing zero DTEs or futures, you're not carrying any overnight cost. And so that's become a lot more popular. So we've had a trend change with the way options are interfacing with the market. Now we have a sort of, with the exception of days like today where it's kind of nasty, on trend days, you tend to have selling of uh, at the money put premium, 
buying of just out of the money call premium. And that cycle adds liquidity to the market. And then it starts to get momentum traders in. It starts to stimulate short covering and it starts to drive the market higher. And that's been a huge driver of some of the upside that we've seen this year. Certainly it's not all of it, but it's helped a lot. And of course, so has the AI narrative which changed the, the paradigm a bit on tech. Now, I'm still a bit suspicious of the AI narrative. It's a show me story, and I'll tell you why I think that's the case. Because yes, we've seen the volume of demand for companies like NVIDIA's uh, H100 processors and the DH200 supercomputers increase pretty substantially from quarter one to quarter two. We'll see what happens if those projections remain true that they do about 11 billion in revenue for that quarter, which would be a, a magnificent increase quarter over quarter. But the question is, where does that hardware refresh cycle end for one you know does it keep going at that pace is it exponential or is it more incremental from here but more importantly when do we see the productivity gains and the multiple or the uh, margin expansion the productivity gains and the margin expansion at all these beneficiaries of ai we've heard of ai all the time on conference calls and that's great we've heard a lot of people getting excited about it but it's now kind of become a show me story where we really do need to see the bottom line increase in productivity, which has been going down for a long time. Wages have been going up. Productivity has been going down for the better part of two years. This technology, a lot of it is not necessarily new. It's just being used maybe a little bit more and it's becoming a little bit more public facing with these language learning models. But automation, machine learning, AI, the stuff is has been used for some time. Maybe it's becoming more prevalent, but we're not seeing it in the data yet. And so what I really want to see is a couple things. I want to see one, the show me story proof for the clients of AI, like people that are using AI to automate workflow or learning or aggregation of large amounts, large amounts of information and analysis of it or otherwise, I'd like to see that translate to them saying, well, our margins increased from 12% to 18% on account of how AI is helping us run our business more efficiently. We haven't seen that. And then the other side, I want to see companies like Microsoft uh, and others that are offering AI as a service to be able to quantify how those revenue streams are really going to help to power the next phase of growth. And so far, we heard the opposite from Microsoft CFO saying, expect gradual increases in AI revenue over time, while their cloud, their key accelerant, Azure, has decelerated meaningfully quarter over quarter. So we've had a rally that's been built on multiple expansion. It's been carried higher by sort of the Magnificent Seven, which are up over 60% year to date. You net them out, you look at the other 493, we're up you know, I think, what, about 8 9%? It's still a decent rally, but it's not nearly the same thing um, that we're seeing, you know, at, at, in the NASDAQ and in the S&P at the top level. So I'm just a little bit concerned about how concentrated things have become. It's definitely encouraging to see that kind of um, growth and then also the resilience in the economy that we've seen that's helped to drive some of this. But I would also say that, you know, maybe, just maybe, uh, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves unless and until earnings are start starting to be able to grow into some of these valuations that we've achieved. So I definitely want to touch on the AI uh, part of it because I, I do think that that's going to be, that is sort of being used as a, uh, I don't want to call it a crutch because that sounds like that's like a, neg a negative connotation, but it seems like that's really sort of what people are looking at when they say, okay, this could potentially be the start of a new bull market. And you say, well, how can a bull market start when, um, you know, valuations are so high and X, Y, and Z. There's so many different things going on. The Fed hasn't started cutting yet. And people point to AI and say, this is a sort of a paradigm shift in technology that's going to boost productivity. And that's sort of where we're heading. And so I, I definitely want to touch on that. 
Before we get there, though, one of the things that you had talked about on the first pod uh, that you came on in, in January, one of the things that was sort of worrying you going forward about the market was this sort of um, the quantitative tightening that the Fed was going to engage in, this balance sheet runoff that the Fed was expected um, to undertake right throughout this entire year. And one of the things that I had noticed, and this was about like April, so this was like three months after we had you on. Um, you know, the markets are rallying. I'm like, what? Why is everything rallying so aggressively? And this was like right after, like you talked about the Silicon Valley banking um, crisis and um, everyone was freaking out, end of the world. Like you said, people were coming on Twitter talking about how we're going to have a Black Monday. Um, famously, Ackman and 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 um, David Sachs come on and say, you know, this is our, this is our, um, what do they call it? They call it their Lehman moment. Like It's everyone, a famous crying billionaire moment, if anything. Right. Everybody, everybody <laughs> was sort of freaking out. But one of the things, again, that you talked about was the quantitative tightening that the Fed was expected to engage in. And when you look at the Fed's balance sheet this year, you know, there was, we started the year about 8.5 trillion, I believe, on the, on the, uh, on the Fed balance sheet, 8.5 trillion. That's right. Um, and we were slowly, slowly coming down as the Fed, like you said, was sticking to their word and, and sort of letting these um, assets roll up the balance sheet. We got all the way down to about 8.3 from 8.5 trillion. And then um, like you said, they open up these facilities to sort of deal with the the banking crisis, and immediately the Fed balance sheet shoots up again to eight point seven trillion. And now we're, we've been working our way down ever since, um, ever since April, and now we're we're at lows of the year in terms of the Fed balance sheet, so it's at eight point two. But when you look at when you look at um, the the level of quantitative tightening that I guess the Fed has has undergone, and really where where we've gone from the beginning of the year, I mean we're only at eight point two trillion from eight point five. Has the full? Do you believe that the full effect of quantitative tightening has been felt by the market? And, and what is something? Um, is that something that you're going to be looking at towards the second half of the year? As you know, we're still really sort of in the same place, like marginally lower than we were in in um, in the beginning of the year. As the Fed continues to let these assets trickle off the balance sheet, um, you know barring some sort of unforeseen event like we saw with the banking crisis, how would you expect this phenomenon to sort of affect the market going forward? Is this something that is supportive of a new bull market? Is this something that um, could potentially cause headwinds to to the markets making new highs throughout the end of the year, like a lot of people are expecting? So, I mean, I think there's been a bit of looking at this in a vacuum, like the Fed's liquidity, their balance sheet is sort of the only thing that drives markets. But I, I believe it's important to contextualize that as a, an important cog in a gear of the greater machine. And so if we look at it from that perspective, then we also have to take into consideration some of the other drivers of global liquidity, right? And so I'd say the Fed and the Treasury General account are both incredibly important in the U.S., but there's also global liquidity flows um, and there's also fiscal impulse. And so going into 2023, there was a couple things that didn't look like they might necessarily happen the way they did, but they did play out that way. One of which was we didn't resolve the debt ceiling until the last possible second. And in doing so, there was no treasury issuance for about the better part of five, six months. Because of that, there was a whole lot of liquidity that stayed in the system that probably shouldn't have. And this may have been strategic. It may have been political. You can certainly help to juice the economy and the market by not issuing treasury debt. And then when you do, issuing it on the shortest part of the yield curve possible so it doesn't absorb too much liquidity. That was one offset. Another offset was the fiscal impulse. So this administration during a time of, you know, inflation decided to create more demand um, I would say driving legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act. And now we have the largest amount of construction of new manufacturing capacity, particularly in semiconductors, that this country has seen in decades coming online right now. 
That fiscal impulse also added liquidity because what happens when the government spends money, it winds up in bank reserves when they pay bills. And that's essentially a stimulative impact. Then you have the Bank of China and the Bank of Japan adding central bank stimulus as well. Now, obviously, the China reopening story is not really playing out how people may have hoped. And I think there is every reason that any money that can leave China would leave China because she has destroyed all confidence in investing there. Really, for any discernible period of time, you don't want to stay there, maybe to trade it, but get the heck out when you can. Um, and in Japan, you know, their, their situation's a mess. The central bank owns over half the debt. The government owns over half the central bank. The GDP, uh, debt to GDP ratio is over 260%. So they really don't have any choice. They might tweak their policy a little bit tonight, but they don't really have any choice but to kind of keep throwing money at it. So all that liquidity offset any impact of QT. And then when the Fed did the bank term funding program or the buy the effing panic program, right? Because if you think of the market reaction, that's what it ended up being. Then it changed the paradigm. And, and so there really hasn't been QT in the way that I think perhaps policymakers saw it working out because I don't think the Fed necessarily projected a protracted debt ceiling negotiation that off more than offset the impact of their program any more than they thought that, you know, China would just try to sort of reopen in the midst of everything that was happening under social pressure. The country's really not bent to social pressure like that in a very long time. And then what's happening in Japan, I wouldn't say it's necessarily terribly surprising, but it's it's definitely an offsetting uh, effect, right? There's a lot of liquidity that's, that originates in Japan that does not stay in Japan. Because if you're able to have a funding cost that's negative and you're able to sell yen and buy dollars and buy attractive U.S. assets, why would you not do that, right? So there's that carry trade that plays out as well. It's predicated on the idea that you can pay back whatever you borrowed at a cheaper yen and keep the gains. So I think that a lot of that offset the impact of quantitative tightening. I don't really believe we've seen a meaningful quantitative imp uh, tightening impact really since uh, the third quarter of last year and, and maybe the October crescendo moment. Now, granted, during periods of disinflation, you're going to have positive bias for equities. People are going to get more bullish. And it makes sense because you could say on the one hand, the worst is behind us. But on the other hand, when you look at what drove nominal increases in earnings, it was inflation. What drove nominal increases in revenue? It was inflation. On the other side of that, what happens with disinflation? Do we see compression of revenue and compression of uh, earnings growth? It's quite possible. And we have been in a earnings recession now for two quarters, and we're potentially in a third one. We are getting more earnings next week from some behemoths like Apple and Amazon. But I would say with leading economic indicators still falling, we haven't seen a trough. We haven't seen anything that resembles a low and, 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 and a meaningful bounce off that low. It's too early to say we've had a soft landing or any landing. It's too early because the data says that we're still in some kind of deceleration. Now, we got decent GDP data today, but a big driver of that is that same fiscal impulse that rolls off after the end of this month. What do things look like when the government isn't spending quite as much? Um, it will be an interesting question. So I think that you know, we still have some vulnerability here, but here's how I would contextualize it so that we can look back at this as a bookmark moving forward to the next time we all talk. Uh, the services sector is one reason this economy is so resilient, right? Goods demand was pulled forward. You had probably 10 years of fiscal spend in, in impulse that wound up in people's pockets during the COVID crash. And then so people pulled forward many years worth of goods demand, computers, appliances, otherwise, everything they could possibly get their hands on, which is fine. It makes sense. But in the in the hangover from that, 
you have a lot of companies that ramped up production and they're not realizing that future demand flow. I mean, particularly you can see it in semiconductors where exports from Taiwan are down 14% year over year, which is the deepest decline since the great financial crisis. Now, that's concerning simply because, you know, we've been led to believe there's this sort of new economic renaissance happening. And it's driven by AI. And yet, semiconductor demand, which should be a big part of this, is not necessarily saying the same thing. Taiwan Semi not only gave us rather disappointing earnings, but pretty disappointing forecasts, and they're NVIDIA's manufacturer, right? And that what that's telling us is that, yes, there is impressive demand in AI chips, but it's a niche, and the bigger semiconductor picture is more than offsetting that strength with the weakness that it's seeing. We see it in South Korea. We see it in U.S. semiconductor companies. Intel broke a profit, but that's a lot of it has to do with aggressive cost cutting. And so I would just say it's a little early to say like the worst is behind us, but it may be more of a forestalled but not necessarily canceled type of situation. So here's what I'm looking for on my roadmap to see whether or not we're going to go into a potential slowdown. First would be services go into a multi-month contraction as quantified by ISM services PMI. And the reason that I'd want to see that is because they've been the outlier and services account for 76% of GDP. So when you look at the contribution from that part of the economy, it's, it's by and far the most important. And it's been driven by things like healthcare, but it's also been driven by things like travel and leisure, restaurants, hospitality, things that could run off. Most of the hiring has been in those two areas as well. Some of that's been rebalancing, but some of it's also been a little bit of excess because of the revenge spend travel trend that might start to ameliorate a bit as we get closer to the end of this year. So I'd be looking for a multi-month services contraction. I'd be looking for new orders, employment, all those to start roll off. And then I'd also look for jobless claims to crest above 300K per week for that same period of time. That as services go into contraction, we see it in the labor market. We see jolts come down and we start to see unemployment rise meaningfully above 4%. When we see that, if that plays out, that would be the pathway to a much slower economy because we haven't seen the services sector break. And I believe unless and until it does, A, the stickiness and in core inflation doesn't necessarily break. And B, we also don't see that economic slowdown. That's been sort of this, you know, moving target for quite a while. Right. One of the things that you talked about on the on the first uh, episode that when you were on is that you said if essentially the economy were to were to not slow down and we were to we were to look like we were heading towards um, a soft landing because at the time was at the time that the narrative was something will break and the Fed will pivot and then the market will go to all time highs because the Fed pivoted right and you said that even if we have a situation where it looks like we're heading for a soft landing and and you know, ultimately, um, inflation comes down, and without having you know massive unemployment, one of the things that you mentioned is that in that environment, the Fed really has no um, incentive to lower rates, right? Like, th th there's there's no incentive really for them at this point, even if they were to pause, let's say in September at their next meeting. What's the incentive for them to to, to lower rates when unemployment is already low? Like you said, inflation is getting better on the headline uh, level, especially, but just looking sticky for, on, from a from a month over month standpoint. So like, what's the incentive for them to really, um, even if they were to pause at the next meeting, to cut meaningfully anytime soon, right? I mean, Powell himself said they don't expect to see um, inflation down to 2% until at least 2025, which is, you know, a little bit further than they were anticipating. Um, before that, that's what he said on uh, yesterday, I believe, in, in, in their last uh, meeting. And so, um, you know, it, there there really is no incentive for that for that ultimate pivot. And I feel like that's what people I've sort of been trying to front run in the markets is, okay, well, we'll get the pivot eventually, you know, for, for one reason or another. And when that happens, the market will immediately rally. And it just doesn't seem like that's going to come. And so is that something else that you're um, sort of paying attention to as we start to see this trend uh, higher? I mean, we're so close to all-time highs and 
the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, the Dow is a little bit um, slower, but even that has woken up recently at 13%. I mean, what was like 13 green days in a row before today's um, nasty afternoon sell-off? I mean, things are looking really, really ripe, in the, uh, particularly in the stock market right now. I know that there are some other parts of the market that aren't looking great, but I mean, stocks have continued to just to just um, rally and rally and rally throughout this entire year. Yeah, so I think that the market is expecting the first cut as early as May now, looking at uh, CME's FedWatch tool, which just overviews Fed fund futures. It was earlier looking at, as, at a cut as early as you know January, then it was March. Now it's being moved out to uh, May. But Powell in the meeting yesterday actually said they're not, a cut isn't even on the table until July. Right. And and so what they want to see is inflation heading in a trajectory where they think it's going to reach their policy goal. And with the lagged and variable impacts of monetary policy continuing to push it there, uh, they could still be comfortable with pausing and maybe cutting again, probably late next year. But here's the kicker. And this is something that I think that that we're going to have to probably come to appreciate if it if it does come to fruition. They may not stop QT when they do their first cuts. And this could be a completely different monetary policy paradigm than anything we've ever seen. And the reason is their balance sheet is just unwieldy large. And we've already seen that, you know, the, the whole world doesn't end when they do QT. So they have every reason to say they can do that. Now, what are the global liquidity conditions going to look like during that period of time? And, and will the world be begging for QE and not get it? We'll see. But I think it's a concern that we're kind of in a period of time where multiple central banks around the world are leaning more towards constraining liquidity, uh, particularly as it, con it concerns balance sheet size over the long term. And key banks like the Bank of England, who has no choice because inflation in England is the worst in the developed world, or the ECB, where they'll probably continue to run off the balance sheet even when they go back to easing as well. And in particular, the Fed, with, which, as you said, really, they haven't achieved the, anything resembling the goal of letting a lot of securities mature off their balance sheet. Their caps have prevented that. I would argue they probably should lift those caps. They should probably let more mature. They should probably expand QT to some degree, but they probably want to monitor what things look like in a world where the Treasury is now issuing debt again, where the ECB is running off their balance sheet a little bit more, and where the Bank of Japan may tweak policy and something may go wrong in China's real estate market because we're seeing uh, defaults surge all over there with developers. It's a pretty nasty situation there with uh, local government funding vehicles as well. And so I I think that they're probably cognizant that there are still some risks. But look, the problem here is this. We're, we're not in the world of the last, like basically anything before the COVID crash, in, unless we look at certain analogs. And even there, they're not great analogs. There's just certain similarities. And so what we have now that makes things a lot different for Fed policy and this is why the imminent pivot or the pivot when we have the soft landing or this sort of like idyllic scenario where next year there's there's projections of economic growth, earnings growth, and yet Fed cuts. The, the reality is that inflation has become much more structurally embedded, that there is inelasticity on the supply side. I mean, look at commodities. They're coming back up like nothing, you know, it, like there's no problem. And, and that's if the economy is that strong or at least demand for co commodities is that strong. Inflation is going to look a lot different, particularly with some of the base effects that helped us during the Russia-Ukraine war uh, last year, kind of set these really high year-over-year -year levels. This year, it's going to look a lot different, and those effects roll off this month. So next month's August, uh, you know, the data that's released in August for July in CPI is going to show no benefit from those base effects with the backdrop of rising energy and services and commodity prices and housing prices. 
inflation, the battle against it's not necessarily over. So I think people need to realign their expectations here, you know, and the housing market's not in good shape. It's just that no one wants to sell their home because mortgages are so high. If they're going to buy a new one, where are they going to go? And so they, they, the supply comes from new homes and there's a kind of a bottleneck there because of what's happening. Home builders are trying to catch up, but new homes have always been the smallest part of the supply and existing was always the biggest part. And now they're trying to kind of shift that paradigm around. It's, it's creating a lot of problems, but underneath the surface, prices aren't going down, but mortgage applications are. So there's not as much activity, but home prices and rents are going back up. And, you know, shelter is a third of CPI. It's about 20% of PCE. So if the Fed is looking at inflation to make these decisions, in the last meeting, Powell emphasized over and over again that every meeting is live, that we're very much driven by the data. There is some chance that, that not only do we not see a cut in the time frame that people may be expecting, but that we actually see one or two more hikes from the Fed um, and that that maybe reset some of these expectations. But at the very least, I'd say they're likely to keep rates higher for a lot longer than many market participants seem to expect. And this has been a theme going on all the way back to the beginning of 2022. The market's constantly tried to front run the first cut and been wrong almost every, you know, well, really at this point, every single time. Um, before I pass it to Alejandro, is that sort of your base case for the rest of the year? Like, what's your base case in terms of where ultimately the, the federal funds rates go? And obviously, it's it's going to be determined on data and XYZ. And they, you know, actually have an extended period of time between now and the next meeting um, with no meeting in August. But what's sort of your base case for um, where rates will go by year end? So first, I'm just going to preface this by saying I don't envy anyone that works at any central bank because it's really walking a tightrope between causing, you know, too much economic damage and letting inflation rip. Like it's, it's a very difficult position to be in. If I was in their position, um, my framework would be that if inflation does begin to re-accelerate, at the very least for managing expectations and trying to compress demand, we'd have to hike one or two more times. So I'd be looking for a terminal rate if those things play out as high as 6% by the end of the year. This episode is brought to you by Elite Trader Funding. ETF is a prop trading firm. For those of you who are unaware of what a prop trading firm is, they basically provide you with capital to trade with, and your only risk is the monthly subscription fee. How it works is once you pass an evaluation account, you then become eligible for real money payouts. Now, there are a lot of prop firms out there, but ETF's customer support, the products, and the styles of evaluations they offer are unmatched. I traded and passed a 150K evaluation account and they were always willing to answer any questions I had along the way. I wish that I had been introduced to them when I first started trading. Thinking back to all the money I lost when I was new to the game, getting the chance to trade a large account while only risking a monthly subscription fee makes too much sense. Not to mention, if you're trying to trade a small sized account, you can develop some pretty bad habits. Trading a funded account lets you really put your skills to the test by trading more realistic size. Head to the link in the show notes to start your journey as a funded trader today. All right. So to change things up a little bit here, I'm very curious as to how you've handled uh, your own personal investing. And I want to have a conversation about trader psychology as it pertains to what we've seen last year now coming into this year. Um, and this is something that we've been talking about on the podcast a lot. We've been talking about the opportunity cost. Um, obviously what we have seen this year, the super sharp rally, everybody's famous, uh, favorite names, ripping face off of their lows, uh, Tesla, Nvidia, Meta, just, you know, moves that nobody really could have truly seen, uh, coming. And when we look back at things and we look at the everyday 
investor and those who may have been left on the sidelines or even worse, those who were continually, continuously trying to short the rally. I think to myself, you know, as an investor and everybody's got, you know, a different time horizon, everybody kind of has a different way that they're playing uh, their game, but the opportunity cost alone of not being involved in the market. So for anybody who has missed the rally or who has been trying to short the move higher, the reason uh, that they would have been in that position is because they were obviously trying to avoid uh, market volatility. Now, long-term investing, that market volatility is kind of the price you pay, right? That's the price of admission. Your money is going to compound at 8% a year for the next 40 years that you're invested on average as long as you let that money sit in the market. But a lot of times during times of volatility, that's when people stop investing or even worse, they pull their money out of the markets. So for you personally, because I know that last year you were very bearish and then coming into this year, as we talked about earlier, you were bearish as well. What did your own personal investing look like and how did you handle that? Because again, those trying to avoid the volatility, that's kind of the ticket right? That's the that's the, the fee that you have to pay to uh, take part in the market. You can compound your money, but you're going to have to withstand some volatility. And anybody who tries to avoid the volatility and be evasive, the market gods don't tend uh, to favor you too well. So how have you managed from the end of last year into this year based on what you're seeing in your own personal investing? Sure. So first, I think it's important to look at timeframes, right? So investing is the very long time frame. And so how I trade and how I invest are two completely different animals. And when I came into this year and really into parts of last year, uh, there were some opportunities that I was interested in and some companies did get cheap enough. But I also like to make sure that I have uh, kind of a balanced trade when I'm going into an environment where I'm less certain about how things might play out. So just an example of the types of trades that I put on this year, one of them that did really well was short China long Japan because we were going into this uh, environment where everyone's very excited about the Chinese reopening, and yet there's no modicum of evidence that tells me that the consumer is participating or exports or exports are uh, getting you know a, a good amount of demand pickup or that the real estate and construction markets, the four pillars of the Chinese economy here are firing on any cylinders, let alone all. So it's a very easy fade because China got very, you know, stocks in China got very bid up. Um, and then in Japan, the opposite was true. For the first time, an economic miracle in a country that has been doing everything they can to try to stimulate their way out of persistent deflation and economic uh, sideways to downward movement, they actually started to see some inflation and some real GDP growth and, you know, industries really starting to come back. And it was the, and then, of course, you had Buffett going over there, basically giving the all clear sign as well. So it's kind of hard to bet against the big man. So looking at that, that was one of the pair trades I put on completely from a top down macro perspective was, look, we've got evidence that there's a momentum shift in Chinese equities starting to happen, but there's also data that supports that from a bigger picture view, there is no Chinese reopening in the government, like it from, from the perspective of like it really being a growth driver, there's no real reopening. Consumers aren't spending, the government isn't stimulating in, in uh, the size that they would need to to really get things going in such a large economy. And that's a big problem. And it was also a big problem for certain commodities. So there were short opportunities in the commodities market as a result of sort of China coming offline as well. Uh, various areas that uh, saw weakness 
periodically were things like industrial metals and uh, agriculture. So I would say that that so far this year, what I've been trying to do is a uh, take advantage of fixed income because some of the opportunities in risk-free fixed income are some of the best that I've seen in you know over 20 years. And so building a portfolio that can yield a risk-free return of over 5% is extremely attractive. Um, looking at some of the AAA corporate debt has been interesting because look, even if there is a difficult economic environment, if I hold Microsoft or ExxonMobil's debt to maturity, I'm not worried about that paper at all. Those companies are gonna be there well after we're gone as human beings, right? So their, their paper is something I don't mind having exposure to and getting yields in excess of 6% has been nice, but also getting some exposure to areas of the market that I actually found attractive. And one of those um, during some of the washouts of this year has been energy because energy is arguably the most profitable, cheapest part of the S&P 500. And as you started to see oil catch a bid from some of these areas where it's been down in the 60s, what I like to do in things like in trades like this is I have a bit of a system where, A, I have a back-tested strategy that kind of looks for um, too much offsides, positioning, sentiment, and flow and crude and gets me alerts based on, you know, commitment of traders data, some of the trading desk data I get from the uh, prime desks and um, also some of the sentiment data and looking at options positioning and some of the ETFs and single stocks that are pretty prominent. You can get signals where people are super duper bared up. And we saw that. The hedge fund exposure to energy, both in terms of commodities and the stocks, was also blown out to the downside. They were very short energy. Of course, then OPEC had to come out, kind of blow them out of the water. But in that sentiment positioning flow washout, there's always opportunity. When everyone's on one side of the trade, there's almost always some way to at least start looking at, well, how can I maybe start to go the other way on that, particularly when it doesn't make sense from a supply-demand perspective, being that bearish on oil in the 60s, when that's kind of like not only where a lot of production is probably going to get throttled a bit, but also you have players who balance their budgets, assuming oil is going to be 70 or $80, that can kind of constrain the spigot a little bit to push price back there, at least while the economy is robust. So looking at that from that sort of macro overlay, but also looking at uh, exhaustion in terms of positioning flow and sentiment got me attracted to energy. There's been some big money uh, in made in some of these stocks, like even Halliburton was what I called out last month for our members. And it's, I think it's up over 20% since the call. out. was a perfect trend line bounce, but it's also a company where, look, I may not care for the company and what they do and all that, but I actually understand the business and energy services companies need uh, to be involved with expanding production wherever they can be. And so there's a great bid for this type of stuff. It's not going anywhere. They're also in the defense industry and we all know what's happening with geopolitical risk. So that kind of works into my framework. So I think that this has been a, a really interesting trading year for pair trades, for momentum trades, and for really driving with back-tested strategies in the driver's seat. Because look, it doesn't have to make sense. It has to work. It doesn't have to necessarily comport to what our view is as long as it's able to make money. So I might have a really bearish view and I didn't get long Tesla uh, or Nvidia at the low. So I'm not going to say I like, you know, looked at all that, but I definitely made money on both sides of the trade this year. And if you look at the heat maps year to date for the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P, and especially the Russell 2000, there's plenty of alpha on both sides of the trade. Uh, fading relative weakness and longing relative strength is the basis of my pair trading strategy. And I, I trade pairs based on regions like we talked about with China and Japan, but I also trade pairs against sectors, against industries, against different asset classes. Because for me, if I'm managing a pair trade properly and I don't get into one without some level of 
understanding why I'm doing it, but also backtesting the strategy, usually over 10 to 20 years worth of data. Um, if I'm getting into something like that, I have a high degree of conviction, but I'm also trying to neutralize some degree of risk on both sides, right? So I'm trying to short the weakness, long the strength, and if all works out, I'm, I'm outperforming whatever the benchmark is, or at the very least, you know, I'm outperforming the S&P. Uh, if it doesn't work out, then I'm hoping that the short helps to ameliorate my downside risk. The long helps to ameliorate my upside risk, and I'm at least breaking even. But a lot of those pair trades, if you're able to put them on and manage them correctly, can be quite helpful. And I would also take that into the options market. This has been a year where playing options has been very interesting as well because of the zero DTE dynamics the impact they've had on price discovery, but also because of what they've done to vol, right? There's been meaningful vol compression. Selling vol and just selling at the money puts in general has been a winning strategy this year. If you were just selling at the money puts every day, zero DTE, sounds risky, you'd actually be up 12% year to date just on that strategy alone based on some of the data from Nomura. And you know that's not bad for something where you're basically just fading expensive premium because we're in a vol compression environment. And what are big institutions doing to lever up their long positioning? They're buying puts. That's how they reduce value at risk, particularly in an environment where vol is so low. But vol can keep going lower in that environment where most of the opinion in future market pricing is being expressed in six and a half hours or less, or at least three days or less, and close to the money. So a number of different strategies, a number of different overlays. I would say that for me, my baseline is there's always an opportunity in some market, and it's just a matter of identifying it. And I like to let some of my, uh, my models and my tools do a lot of the work identifying it. And then I'll go in and see whether the trade comports with my risk reward, where I'm really looking for four times more reward than risk. If I can get into a swing trade or an investment like that, it makes a lot more sense. And then if I can repeat it with a 50, 60% win rate, it starts to add up and compound pretty nicely. Halliburton is actually one that you talked about in the in the last pod, I believe. You we, we asked you what parts of the market you were looking at um, that you found particularly attractive going into Q1. I know that you had mentioned Halliburton um, as one of those names, which is actually up about fifty percent on the year. It's fifty percent since you came on, so that was definitely a good one. Um, so I want to ask you the, the the same question: What are you looking at going into the end of the year? What are some parts of the market that you find attractive? What are some parts of the market that you maybe want to avoid? Um, going into the second half of the year here? So I'm looking at a number of different things, uh, looking at geographies. And, you know, again, my partner and I, uh, Aisha and I, we look at um, these sort of top-down driven trading strategies and investment strategies at Macrovisor for the longer time periods. And so we're seeing certain pockets of opportunity in Latin America and Asia that seem attractive to us. Um, we're looking at some of these pair trades, even still one that um, we put out recently was actually long Mexico, short England uh, in terms of equities. So another pair trade strategy, because, you know, England's in really bad shape. Inflation's out of control. Bank of England's going to have to, I mean, sad as it is to say they're really going to have to step on the economy quite a bit to slow things down. And then Mexico is on the other side of their tightening cycle. Inflation's in much better uh, control. Their economy is really starting to grow. And um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a nearshoring uh, growth story as well because of all the sort of trade tensions that have happened. There's a lot more manufacturing coming to Mexico. It's also a net exporter of energy. And they benefited from oil being close to $80 a barrel. So there's some dynamics in there that look attractive. I still think there's lots of opportunities in short duration fixed income that's uh, high grade. I mean, I, I don't see any reason not to have some allocation into treasury paper here, because literally, you know, if you don't like uh, Microsoft trading at a Ford PE of 33, which is among the highest levels it's traded since the dot com 
bubble, like even during it. Uh, if you're not comfortable with buying a company like Google, where there's not really revenue growth, but they also enjoy such a large PE, um, I, I think there's opportunities elsewhere. Like basically what I'm saying is when, you know, seven stocks have carried most of this rally to such an extent that the Nasdaqs had to rebalance their entire index down from the top 10 being 61% to 51%. It's still a lot of concentration with 10 stocks making 51% of a 100 stock index. I think it makes sense to look elsewhere. I like ideas of pair trades as well. I like the idea of going long um, mid cap value and short uh, large cap growth. I think that that could be an interesting pair trade. I like the idea of going long, low volatility, large caps and short, high beta, large caps. I think it's at the bottom of a multi-year trading range that makes it a very attractive way to kind of play what could be the end of the cycle. Um, I think that there's probably going to be some interesting currency opportunities. I think with what's going on with the Bank of England, even though I'm bearish of the FTSE, I'm actually bullish of the pound. And I like it with a number of different pairs, like especially pound euro as as just one example, because I don't think the ECB can go anywhere near where the BOE is likely to go. And that's probably going to put some proper pressure on that currency pair as one example. Um, and then I like looking at some of the areas of the market where like Raytheon got absolutely killed the other day. It's down like 12% because there's some engine mo uh, issues with some of their, you know, some of their uh, jet engines. And I get it. It's not a great thing. And the same thing happened to Boeing. It, it eventually recovered. But Raytheon is a defense contractor. They just re re they renamed themselves recently, too. It's kind of weird. Their name is now RTX. So now when we, we talk about Raytheon, we just refer to them as their stock symbol all yeah. the time, not just in market context. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so now they're called RTX. And look, they've got a lot of no bid favoritism from the military industrial complex. The defense budget's growing from 850 this year to probably 920 next year in the billions. Um, the geopolitical tensions continue to rise. We've got this great big amount of weapons and ammo restockpiling we have to do from all that's been exported to Ukraine. And Raytheon's one of the beneficiaries of that. So are General Dynamics. I like those two, but Raytheon, after the big haircut, if they can base out and start to build a bit of uh, volume around this level, which has already been pretty close to a key volume node, I'm pretty excited about that as a defensive position in the defense industry. I like some of the uh, medical technology stocks, um, Meditech, med just Medtech in general. Medical device technology is a good company there, but Medtech in general is an interesting part of healthcare uh, that I would be constructive on. I still think that there's uh, some potential upside in the um, parts of cybersecurity that are kind of overlooked. One of the ideas that I recently shared with TraderAid members as a part of a Thesis Thursday event we do where we kind of pitch stocks we like was Qualys. And Qualys is a company that does business with like the entire Fortune 1000. They've got so many big name clients all over the world. They help to give them a single pane of glass that allows them to analyze threats, remediate threats, uh, respond to them, get uh, more detailed forensic information, manage vulnerabilities and otherwise. And, you know, they have competition for sure, but they've carved out their edge and they're actually a, a leader in their space and they're continuing to grow at a pretty stable clip. And while they're not necessarily cheap, they have the growth to, to warrant their valuation. So, you know, it's, it's things like that. It's really looking underneath the surface. You can find find opportunities pretty much all over the world in various markets and asset classes, but you have to be very careful and selective and, and be sure that, you know, you have ways to manage risk. And one of the ways that I do that, just talking about the way I invest and trade is that I don't want any single position to go against me more than 1% of my total portfolio. So when I'm sizing a position and I'm figuring out where the stop is based on its general volatility, that's how I'm figuring out the size. Because if I'm like, okay, if I'm going to trade something that's extremely volatile, I'm going to need a larger stop. So I don't just get pulled out of the trade, which means I need a much smaller position. 
right? So that's another thing that I've done that's helped to keep me both honest with the sizing that I do, but also out of harm's way. Because, you know, when we get really excited and we think, oh, this is a sure thing, it's going to go up a hundredfold, we get killed on those trades. And you got to make sure you size yourself accordingly on those same trades, because those are usually going to be the super high beta ones that either they go wildly well or they go really, really badly. So I think sizing is important, and that's something I've emphasized a lot. But the other thing that I think is important, we talked about this off mic a bit, and I've alluded to it a, a few times during the conversation, is backtesting so that you can have a systematic approach to your entry and exit and risk management. So you can get to know the personality of the asset or stock or industry or sector that you're trading, because the more that you're able to understand it, not only will you gain the confidence to see the good trades through and know exactly where you should probably be getting out of the losers, but you also come up with a system that removes emotion, guesswork, and impulse, and that allows you to become a more proficient trader, not expending mental and emotional capital on things that don't play out and make money. I really like that you mentioned sizing in uh, terms of how big you want to size relative to the stop. And a, a big misconception or common misconception that a lot of traders have, and I'll use just, you know, uh, S&P futures ES to keep things simple. They'll say, okay, uh, one trade has a 10 point stop. The next trade has a, a 15 or 20 point stop. And they'll equate that 20 point stop to being double the amount of risk to that 10 point stop. When realistically, for myself as a trader, I have predefined risk going into each and every trade and it's a dollar amount. So if I know that, okay, for this particular trade, I'm gonna need a 20 point stop, I'm obviously gonna be sizing half of what I would if I'm using a 10 point stop. And it works with everything you're trading, as you mentioned. For you, uh, you obviously trade very differently than I do, but it's all the same concept. and you don't want to get pulled into that uh, that downward spiral of okay, one trade I'm going to size at twenty percent, and then you know one trade I'm going to size at four, or my stop is going to be forty percent, and you're risking twice as much. If you realize and you recognize, you know, based on market environment, based on what it is that you're trading, that you need to be using a wider stop, that does not mean that you should be sizing the same as you would when you're using a tighter stop. Making sure that the stop loss is actually the dollar amount that you're comfortable losing is super, super important. And I mentioned recognizing market environment. There's some times where we come in and for a couple of weeks straight, volatility is just ridiculous. Uh, earlier in the year, I think around March, uh, around the banking crisis is when we really saw this, where the market was just flying in both directions. Um, and it felt like a 15 point move in the S&P futures was literally a two point move. You can't size the same way, right? If you recognize, all right, there's a high amount of volatility and you can watch the VIX as well. I don't personally watch the VIX, but it's you know obviously a good indicator as to uh, how volatile the market um, is. If you recognize there's more volatility in the market, you can't possibly be sizing the same wood, the same way you would when there's zero volatility in the market. And that's just a really uh, simple tip that you can carry over into your trading in order to recognize, look, why am I getting stopped out of my position so often? Is it because of my sizing? Is it because of where I'm placing my stop? Or is it because, you know, I should just be sizing down on this trade and giving it a lot more time uh, and room to work? Yeah, I think you mentioned some very important things there. And it is all about 
position sizing based on the relative volatility of the instrument. And, you know, there's various ways to quantify that. We can look at implied volatility. We can look at realized volatility. We can add them together and and divide them to figure out what our stops should be. That's one thing that I actually like to do is take IVOL plus RVOL and then divide the sum of that by uh, 29, 28 and get a sense as to where maybe the market's uh, getting ahead of what anticipation uh, was for perceived price variability and what realized price variability was, because often that can be a turning point, just like looking at beta. But otherwise, yeah, knowing where your stop is helps you know what your position size is. And exactly, a, a 10-point stop on a larger position is effectively the same as a 20-point stop on a position half that size. And it's an important part of understanding how markets work that not only do does everything trade differently than each other, but there's also different market regimes. And those regimes are often determined by things like the amount of liquidity. And so the time period that you mentioned where we were during, you know, during the banking crisis and really in the aftermath of it, uh, that was a period of very low liquidity. And if you look at some of the data that's been put out by JP Morgan and others, there's a pretty strong co correlation here between an abundance of liquidity and low volatility, just as there is a relationship between an absence of liquidity and higher volatility. It makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because if I'm going in the market and I'm dumping a thousand contracts into an illiquid book, it's going to move it a lot more. There's much less to absorb that flow. So price is going to move a lot more. And so when we come in and the order book on the S&P is like 20,000 contracts deep, it's, you're going to move the book a lot more with a thousand contracts than on a day when there's 60,000 contracts deep. And that's exactly what you were talking about. And you were feeling it. And you mentioned the VIX. And I would just say, look, I, I don't think the VIX has much value anymore. And I will just say that for now. And the reason is this, because we've gotten into an environment where so much positioning is happening in such a short time frame, so close to price in terms of S&P options, that by nature, that suppresses volatility because there's less future-looking uncertainty about price outcomes. And as a result, you, you, you're you not going to have as much implied volatility because imp the, the implication is there won't be as much volatility based on how people are trading. Now, the other side of that is when you suppress vol, you get vol control funds that start to go long and greater size uh, and, and they become bigger equity buyers. So it kind of becomes this feedback loop. You're selling put premium, buying call premium, suppressing vol. They come in, they're buying the market. Then you got the bigger guys leveraging up their longer term positions, buying puts, pushing up premium there so you can sell it back into the market, buy call suppress while it becomes a cycle and it has become that cycle it's a very interesting sort of like a bike built by dr seuss that's kind of powering the market here as the tail wags the dog but the other part of this that's really interesting is time because there is an opportunity cost not only in money but in time and one of the most important parts of a trade outside of managing price and the risk associated therewith is managing time and the exposure we have in an asset because sometimes we find that something isn't working, but we don't necessarily get out because we haven't set a limit as to how long we were waiting for this trade to work out. And backtesting can help a lot with that because sometimes you will see that if something doesn't play out by X number of candles, whatever your time frame is, it's not going to play out at all. Like, or it's at least a very low possibility. It becomes sort of like a right tail event. So that's another thing that I think is important because particularly if you're running on margin or, or you're fighting against theta decay and options, you've got to value your time. You're also not going to get that time back to try something else that could have worked better. So if something's not working out, maybe our capital is better deployed elsewhere. So controlling position sizing, but also duration of exposure, I think are two really important elements for successful trading. Hey, Noah. 
What do moving averages, RSI, and MACD all have in common? They're all lagging indicators from the 70s with weak ability to predict future price action. Exactly. Modern retail traders need modern trading tools. That's why we've partnered with Rocket Scooter, an artificial intelligence and algorithmic charting tool that predicts where high volume will occur before it happens. That's right. Rocket Scooter's 15 unique indicators help visualize in real time where institutional players are interested on almost any stock and gives you a clear-cut game plan for how to take advantage of the underlying mechanics of the market. A platform like that probably costs a ton of money. Right now, they're offering three months of Rocket Scooter Pro for only $35 a month, knocked down from the original price of $179 a month. Take advantage of this monster deal by heading over to the link in the show notes and getting started using Rocket Scooter today. I think that the issue there is that people have absolutely no idea what their plan is when they enter a trade. That's something that you need to decide well before you enter the trade. For me, it's very simple. I am waiting for my trade to either work out and my target to hit or for it to fail and get stopped out. And I'm trading the S&P futures, so I don't have to worry about theta decay. I'm not trading options. So for me, it's you know, it, it could take three days for the trade to work out. It could take 30 seconds for the trade to work out. It's all the same. But people start to play this game where they enter a trade and then they get impatient and, you know, the, and their contracts are losing uh, value because of theta decay. And that's all a result of having no plan when you entered the trade. And we spoke to Money Mander recently, who talked about how adding time uh, when trading options has helped him a ton. And he's been able to plan out, look, this trade, I can see this stock doing uh, this move, and I'm going to give it the next six to eight weeks to play out. And so he can just sit there and sit there and sit there. But if you don't have that if predetermined when you go to enter a trade, all the mind games start to kick in, right? You're like, oh, you know, oh, it, it's red today and, you know, it's going against me and now I'm down 10% and am I size too big? It's like that. Once you uh, execute, it has to be hands off. It has to be hands off. That's at least how I handle my trading. I like to take the discretion out of it once I've already hit that go button, right? Once I'm in the trade, that's it for me. And then to go back and talk about the sizing, I want to uh, talk about one more point here because I think it's really important. People associate heavier sizing or larger position sizing with like being cooler and that you're going to make more money. So they think and they look at their trading account and they think, okay, if I only trade with 10% of my account, you know, I'm not going to make that much money. But then if they take trades with 20% of their account, they're obviously going to make more. But the problem is that you're getting stopped out on almost every trade and now your hit rate is 30% because you're shitting your pants every time the trade goes 5% against you and you're just getting stopped out and stopped out and stopped out. For me, I know that based on my strategy and the way I trade, I need to be using wide stops. So I'm using 12 to even 20 point stops on the S&P futures. So my hit rate has gone way up. My position sizing has gone way down. As a result, funny enough, I've been making more money and it's because I'm letting my trading process work itself out versus worrying about how much money am I going to make on any given trade. It's more important to develop a process and uh, to it's more important to develop a process that's going to let you be successful over a huge set of trades versus just focusing on that one trade that's going to be a big winner. Anytime I see somebody say, 
you know, whether it's in the discord or on Twitter, Oh, you know, I made $10,000 today. Like, I'm like, first off, I look at their process. I'm like, is this something that's repeatable? Most oftentimes it's not most oftentimes it's like a one-off thing. And the first thing I, I tell myself is they're going to give it right back. They're going to give it right back because it's not repeatable. And when you're trading with that heaviest size, it's going to work. It's going to mess with your head. And so for me, it's super important to just focus on that process. And then the sizing is irrelevant. And then earning that right to size up. I listened to a chat with traders uh, podcast the other day. And I don't remember the exact episode, but the individual that I was listening to, uh, he said that in order to size up, he takes the average uh, or the median rather of his green days over the past 22 trading days, which is like the average trading days uh, in a month. And so he'll take the median and double that is his max loss for any given day. And that's how he measures how much he could potentially lose on a day. And so in order to size up, that means that his green days are going to have to start getting larger. And so he's earning that ability or that right to size up. Whereas traders, again, think that sizing up is like the cool thing to do when really it's not like making money consistently is the cool thing to do. But they think they're to themselves, okay, because I made one winning trade here, I get to size up on the next trade. But earning that sizing up, I think is super important. Yeah, I love everything you just said. I couldn't agree more. I think that, look, it's very simple. Trading without a plan is gambling. It is not trading. And I think this is a huge misconception that people can just sort of go out, find something to start trading and just start blindly buying calls or whatever and hoping for the best. Because like you said, and, and this is the saddest thing about it, the worst thing that can happen to someone that's doing that is actually to have a big winning trade. Because now they've just reset their ego, their expectations. They're like, oh, I can just kind of wing it. And I just got the golden touch. And I'm just going to keep winning. And then they blow up. They blow up inevitably. And 98% of people do exactly that. Like I see it yeah. every single, like, I'm not kidding. 98, if not 99% of retail traders do that every single, that is their strategy. They wake up, they look for something to trade. If they think it's going up, they buy calls. If they think it's going down, they buy puts. And they're right probably 30 to 40% of the time. And anytime they make a good amount of money, they're giving it right back. And there is such a, a lack of, I don't know, I get frustrated about it because that's how, you know, trading was for me when I first started. I think that's how it is for everybody, right? But you have to be super deliberate in the process and people don't realize that enough. Yeah. And I think that that comes with, look, if you don't have a system and you nailed it when you said, look, this guy made 10,000. Is it repeatable? If it's not repeatable, then there's no process. You don't have any way to become consistent because you don't even, like you said, understand what just happened. How does it work? How do we have that scenario set up again? That's the worst disservice that a trader can do to themselves is start out and just think like, oh, I don't even need to have a system. I can just wing it and I'll do good enough and I'll be fine soon enough. I'll be making millions of dollars and, you know, a hundred folding my account or whatever. But the reality is, that you have to go in with a plan before you even look at executing anything. And that plan shouldn't be something that we deviate during the course of the trade either, right? We have a plan, we have a strategy, that plan and that strategy becomes our discipline and that discipline powers our consistency so that we can become over time better and better traders. And it's like you said, you know, you earn the right to size up. So for me, I earn the right to size up as well, but in a different way. If I'm having a really good year, 
Like if I'm up over 40, 50, 60% year to date, I'm going to start taking larger speculative position sizes simply because my account size is going to be larger, right? And simply because I feel like I've had some really good trades. So I'll take some larger trades, but I'm also not going to do it blindly and just without regard for risk. I'm going to do it on trades where I feel like there's a really good chance that I can push that gain for the year even higher without taking a, you know, a significant loss. So I think it's really important to have respect for the reason to size up is because our system is working. And if our system is working, perhaps we can take more appreciable risk, but we shouldn't try to do the opposite. And most people fall into the trap of, oh crap, I lost a, a lot of money on this trade. Let me size up really big and try to revenge trade myself out of this hole. And then they just dig a hole they can never get out of, right? And eventually often is the case they blow up their account. So I think understanding the process being able to write it down, I always encourage people that I coach that they should have a trading journal, that every trade that they do should be written out. How did you enter? Did you enter all at once? Did you think you were smarter than the market or did you scale in? Did you scale out? Did you get your stop hit? How did you feel when you were making the trade? Were you really excited? What was your process? Why did you get in this? What's your theory? How are you managing your risk? And then you can start to identify which trades work, which trades yeah, kind of iffy, like a coin toss, and then which trades absolutely don't work and start really iterating on the process that does work. I mean, some people will find that maybe they thought they were going to be a day trader and they're a much better swing trader or vice versa. Maybe they find through analyzing their trades, there's certain instruments that they're just, their personality is better calibrated to handle. But I think having that cognizance of a repeatable process also comes down to having an audit trail of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then eventually how we can figure out how we can become consistent with some of those winners. And it doesn't mean we need to win every trade. The best traders under like Steve Cohen, for example, have about a 62% win rate. That's amazing because if your winners are big and your losers are small, 62% could mean that you're doing 150% every year, right? I mean, it's all about kind of what you're trading and how you're trading it and compounding those gains. But at the end of the day, people sometimes get really upset. Like I was wrong. Being wrong doesn't matter as long as you're not staying wrong for long. If you're wrong on, 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 you know, half of your trades, but you're still beating the market and your losers are small and your winners are appreciably bigger by multiples, you're doing fine. And I find people out there that are like upset, like, oh, I'm not right as much as I think. It's just, just tune your process. If you can beat whatever the underlying asset is that you're trading, you know, if you were just holding long or holding short, just as an example, that's at least a start that you can start to build off of, right? Like if you're trading gold and gold's up 10% year to date and your system's up 30% using entries and exits that are planned by say a back-tested process or a certain chart uh, technique like a Bollinger Band squeeze expansion or whatever, if you're beating the underlying by that much, there's obviously something to that process that if you can repeat it and identify it, you can become more consistent and become a bit of a savant trading whatever that asset is. And that's exactly what I think successful traders should go for. A, knowing that what might work for me or you or Noah may not work for them. They might need to do something completely differently that comports with their wiring, with their personality, with, with what works for them. But on the other side of that, everyone can learn from each other. No matter how we trade, there's always something we can learn from each other, which going back to the beginning, that's one of the reasons I really liked Twitter back in the day, because there was so much of that open discourse. And a lot of the time it was constructive rather than just people trolling themselves to no end. But the other point, point <laughs> that, I, that I think is important is, you know, get to know yourself. Because what better way to understand your limitations as a human being emotionally and intellectually, you know, and, and under pressure and otherwise than trading? Because really, it is a process of self-discovery. And part of that self-discovery, if you're doing it the right way, is you grow as a human being. 
because you start to realize what your weaknesses are and you work on them. You start to realize what your strengths are and you build into them. Going to the options point, because I, I think this is a really interesting one as well. The other thing that, you know, about time and options and otherwise, the other thing that can really help people that I think is not done enough is using spreads, calendar spreads, diagonal spreads, vertical spreads, and otherwise to reduce the debit to have some kind of a hedge in the trade. So instead of just going straight up puts or straight up calls, uh, especially of shorter duration, longer duration, but also putting a, a spread in. And I like diagonal spreads most of the time. I think they tend to work if I have some kind of directional bias, but it also keeps me honest because I can say, look, I might not be smart in the market. And if not, if I'm not, I have a lower cost to roll this position. And if I'm right, I might not realize the 100% gain if I was just in one side of the trade, but over time, again, with repeatability, consistency, and discipline, having a spread trade in options tends to work out better than just being in a contract and hoping that it gets to where you want it to go. There's a lot of things that work better than just being in a contract and hope. Yes. Yeah, hope, <laughs> hope is not a strategy, but it is something that we see every day on social media. Yeah. I really like how you mentioned, figure out what works for you. They're going to hear you have said that. They're going to immediately start thinking, okay, let me go like look at my trades. Like what's like working best in my trades? Like, or, or you know, am I, am I doing the best like trading Tesla? Am I doing the best trading Microsoft? Am I doing the best trading futures? When I hear that, I think about what is my personality best geared towards? Because once you can figure that out, that's what you really need to hammer. For me, I've figured out that that's, you know, spending an hour, maybe max two hours at the screens intraday. I'm looking to take one absolute max two trades a day. I really just like to be involved as little as I possibly can, but I do have the goal of coming into the market as a day trader and making money every day versus somebody else who maybe will sit there for six and a half hours and take 10 trades, right? So once you can figure out your personality, then you could figure out what you should really be hammering because a lot of people, what I think do the mistake that they make is that they'll say, okay, I want to be a swing trader, but then they shit their pants anytime they're in a position overnight. So buddy, maybe you shouldn't, you know, spend the next six months trying to learn how to swing trade. Why don't you focus on learning how to day trade? Or maybe somebody, you know, is working a full-time job and they just don't have the time to be watching the market or they don't have the personality to sit there and be super locked in uh, for whatever period of time, whether it's an hour, two hours, um, maybe you just don't have that, you know, attention to give the market. Well, then maybe you should look into swing trading. But instead, they're spending six months to two years trying to learn how to day trade. So maybe the mistake isn't that you're not, you know, trading good or you're not good at trading. Maybe it's that you're just not focusing on your strengths. And you could find that in other areas of your life. Like, are you a disciplined individual? Are you a lazy individual? Be honest with yourself and then kind of gear those personality, uh, gear your personality to what you think is going to, you know, work best in the market. And it, it is pretty funny to think about like how many different ways you can trade and how many different ways you can make money in the market. But people spend so much time trying to figure out you know, any, you know, one specific strategy without realizing that, you know, all right, maybe this just doesn't work for me in particular. Like when I listen to, to you, and I'll be honest, when I listen to you talk about macro and I listen to your spread trades and what, like that works for you, 
there is not a single day on God's green earth that I would even attempt to trade the way that you do. It doesn't work with my brain. It doesn't interest me. It doesn't, I am, you know, so I want things to be as simple as possible. I have one chart on my screen. I have support and resistance on the S&P futures. And I will sit there and I will make that thing my baby. And I basically have the chart memorized and that's it. And it's the same thing every single day. Whereas some people, you know, they, they want to trade different names every day. And they need that, that kind of, you know, excitement of looking around the market, different parts of the market, you know, looking across uh, different markets in order to find trades. Hello, if I tried to do that, me already saying that doesn't interest me. If I try to do that, if I listen to the podcast and now I go try to trade like uh, Markets and Mayhem, I'm going to spend the next 10 years of my uh, of my life, uh, you know, with my head up my ass, <laughs> like not being able to figure out what the hell is going on, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, that one of the things that you hit on that I want to touch on real quick is is I like the idea of least participation. And knowing exactly how much you want to be in the market, not spending all your time just burning yourself out, watching every tick and just looking for a trade, maybe two a day, but trying to be exposed as less as possible, because that's the opposite of the average retail trader, which is the idea of like, oh, this is exciting. I want to be involved as much as I possibly can, which means always having an open position, you know, and impulsively just going into one trade after the next, after the next, and just sort of hoping and praying for the best, because honestly, that is a common pseudo strategy, shall we say. Um, but yeah, I think it, it is incredibly important because like what I do, yeah, it is, it is different and it, it does require, um, uh, you know, a macro background and uh, a background with fundamentals and also overlaying that with backtesting and momentum strategies. And it's more of like a quant kind of uh, configuration. And it works for me because I've worked that strategy since uh, really 2008, 2009, when I started looking at these types of strategies. So I've, I've had a lot of time to develop and um, you know, I've also done uh, some degree of institutional consulting in that capacity and identifying some of those trends and and uh, macro indications and, and and particularly also opportunities in tech. And so it, it is a little bit different. But I think at the end of the day, you know, everyone has a skill that can give them an edge. And it's like you said, they need to know their personality so they can find that. It's not going to be from, you know, looking at like social media or watching YouTube. It's going to be through getting to know ourselves and pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone and doing things that may, you know, at first seem like really uncomfortable and unpleasant. And then eventually it becomes natural. And the thing is, like, when you start to do anything. At first, everything seems so challenging because we're not familiar with it. And then eventually our brain forms new optimized neuro pathways. It, it sheathes mylar, myelinated pathways that actually accelerate the transmission of information. So it goes from like when you first started trading, you remember looking at a chart and taking so much time to identify key levels, identify, you know, where you would get in and out of a trade. Now it's like you look at a chart and look at split like for you in the S&P, you know exactly where you're going to get in and out. Like, you know, the chart, like the back of your hand and you can react almost reflexively to it. But it, you weren't there in the first day, first week, first month. No one is. And I think that's the biggest thing of putting ourselves out of our element is being aware that, yeah, there's a learning curve. Embrace the learning curve. Embrace the fact that in the world of finance, economics, and otherwise, and really in life itself, we never know everything and we should always endeavor to learn more and get better. Yeah, applying that knowledge to improve our process. And I think that's the biggest thing is, look, the moment that anyone thinks, like, I've learned everything there is to know about any subject, right? That's when they're in trouble, and especially when it comes to trading, when you're putting your livelihood in one way or another at risk every day.
100%. I just gave that tidbit where I was listening to a podcast and I listened to a guy talk about his sizing up strategy. And I'm like, hmm, that's pretty cool. I can go and implement that into my trading. And I, and I am going to do that. If I were to ever get complacent, I think everything would just go to shit. I mean, you said it perfectly. The market is always evolving. So we have to be evolving. We have to be learning. I mean, it, the minute that you're complacent and you think you have it figured out, the market is going to you know, remind you that, hey, buddy, like you're not the one that's that's in control here. And that, that's <laughs> re that really is how it works. But not only that, you need to have the hunger to get better because in this business, the window for opportunity is endless. You could do what you could do anything. I mean, I think that's why we love trading and that's why we love finance, because this world that we're small fish in is just incredible. And if you're not waking up every day, with the fire to push the limits, whether that's, you know, I want to, uh, you know, get good enough to where I can increase my size by one ES contract, or, you know, I want to get good enough to where I can start buying, uh, you know, six options contracts instead of five, whatever, just using, you know, basic examples. If you don't have like that fire to, to make those small increments in your trading, and you're not itching to prove to yourself that you're becoming better and better and better, then, you know, that you probably shouldn't be doing this because that's really what you need. The the complacency, there's no room for it, right? The best traders are always pushing to do better and better and better. And, you know, my mentor who uh, has like 30 years of trading experience, uh, probably the best trader I've ever met and spoken with in my life, he is still every single day when I go into his office so he, he's back in Florida. When I go visit my family in Florida, when I go into his office, his entire desk is spread out with like notes, like notepads, like handwritten. And he's just like churning through shit every single day. Like if it was like his first day on Wall Street and I go and I see that and I'm like, this guy 30 years later, having already made like so much money, he could literally just sit back on his ass, call it a day and retire and be good to go for the rest of his life. But he is still so hungry to become a better trader and to just make a better life for himself, right? And that is the type of fire I think that's absolutely necessary for any trader. Yeah, I, I don't think the, the the real traders ever really retire. Everyone uh, that, that has traded comes to a point where they want to quit, right? <laughs> yeah. Probably more than once. And that's natural. And it's actually a healthy part of the process because it gives you the time to reflect and figure out, is this what I should be doing? Uh, am I cut out for this? And if you are, you'll make it and you'll make some tough decisions. And you'll figure out all these things we've talked about, the consistency, the discipline, the process, you know, driven trading. But uh, the, the real traders out there, they really don't ever retire. They're very hungry. They're very passionate. They're always learning. They're always refining their process. And they always want to continue to stay immersed in all the things that kind of keep the brain active because think about it i mean when we're uh 20 30 years forward from where we are right now are we still going to want to trade the market absolutely we are this passion doesn't die it only it only evolves over time maybe you trade differently maybe what you trade changes but you'll always have a desire in one way or another to trade like and, and in some cases maybe you go from trading a synthetic asset like index futures to actually setting up some kind of mercantile trading construct for real life products and you know you have the experience of understanding momentum and trends but also you know some nuances about the economy that gives you an edge in actually real world trading i mean this all has 
you know, uh, it, it has application in business and elsewhere, but it also helps us grow as human beings. Because if we really are real traders and we're really spending a lot of time refining our process, we're also refining the parts of our personality that are the jagged edges, the impulsivity, the overly emotional responses, the lack of clear, fast judgment under pressure. And those evolutionary processes for our personality come into play in various other parts of our life way outside of trading. 100%. What you really need at the end of the day, like you said, it's a, it's a constant marathon with, um, with yourself and, and every single day, like, um, Alejandro sort of mentioned, it's not only learning more about your, your trading strategy, learning more about the market itself, learning more about whatever it is that you're doing, but it really is learning more about yourself on a day in and day out basis. And that's how you get better as a trader. So I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, Eminem. A hundred percent. I agree with you guys. It really is about making ourselves better people. It's about evolving and it's about, you know, how we just keep improving our skill set. And look, in any endeavor in life, uh, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, which I fall into that bucket as well, you'll see the same thing is true of startups. You're, if you're in a startup, you're constantly improving what you're doing. If you don't, you're not going to be a startup for very long. You're going to always be looking at how can I iterate to make a better product or service for my customer? How can I appeal to a broader mass of customers? How can I make the customer relationships more sticky so that we don't have high churn as we continue to grow our revenue? And then how do we eventually get to the point where we're able to have a discernible margin while continuing to provide extended, you know, basically very competitive value proposition to those customers to keep them engaged? And it's the same thing. I mean, you take this mindset and you can extrapolate upon it and it's, it's what helps us be better in multiple areas of our lives. And so I think it's really important because it, it is really sorting the wheat from the chaff too. And no disrespect to anyone that doesn't make it as a trader or an entrepreneur or otherwise, but it's a relief to know that maybe that's not the right thing and you can focus your time elsewhere. And then on the other side of it, when you find out it is a good fit, it's also a relief because you start to find, hey, if I just do this and that, and I change my process in this way, or I iterate my routine in that way, I can get better and better. And it starts to become this game of becoming a better and better version of yourself every day, every week, every month, every year, and looking back and having discernible milestones. Like, hey, remember when I was only doing 20% a year and now I'm doing like, you know, multiples better than that. And I feel much better about my training. Like you can look back and you can see those milestones and you can see how it impacts you in other parts of your life. So it's, it's a great area to talk about trading psychology because we're all human beings. And even if we're running algorithms or back tests or other kind of routines, it all still has some degree of reliance on our own psychology, our own mental health, our awareness, our well-being and our ability to continue to grow and evolve as individuals. And I think that when we contextualize it that way, it doesn't seem as fun or as sexy as lottos and Lambos, instant wealth and retiring on a yacht tomorrow. But the reality is that people that get into this game, they don't want to retire from it. They actually really enjoy it. It's not even look, I'll tell you some of the people that I know that have eight, nine figure trading accounts, they don't care about their account size. It's the love of the game. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. And as you progress, the most addicting part, I think, is as you mentioned, you look back at the progress you've made and I don't think, you know, I look back and I'm like, oh, like, wow, this is so sick that like I made this money or like this is so sick that, you know, I made like this really awesome trade. I'm like, this is badass that I've been able to like overcome those obstacles that I faced early in my trading career. And I look at where I'm at right now versus where I was when I first started. And it's like I'm a different person. And to get here, it took work every single day. And that's what I'm most proud of. And that's why anytime I 
either listen to a trader with it, whether it's on a podcast or, you know, I see somebody on Twitter where a lot of people will be infatuated by the gains or the amount of money they have. I'm like, this guy or this girl, I know they went through hell to get to where they're at. Like that, that success does not come easily. And that's why I'm like, I want to pick your brain. I want to know like that process of how you became the trader that you became. I want to know your mental game. I want to know about your biggest loss. I want to know about your biggest win, how you handled those emotionally, because that's really what carves the path to successful trading versus just, you know, how, what's your strategy? Like, how are you like so good at, you know, that's all, it's all relative. As we mentioned earlier, like you can find different ways to make money in the market, but traders typically have similarities when it comes to their personalities and how disciplined they are. And, you know, something that I'm focusing on right now, we've been talking about sizing is sizing up and doing it properly. And so I've been listening to a lot of traders uh, on podcasts who trade heavier size. And I want to understand what goes on in their brains. I want to know, you know, what is it that they, uh, what is the mentality that they carry in order to put on those big, that big size when the moment is right. Things like that, that constant itch to, you know, I got to know like why this guy has had so much success. Right. Uh, but Eminem, this has been awesome. Phenomenal conversation. The longest podcast we've had, I think all year or maybe ever. And rightfully so, because this was a lot of fun and no surprise, you brought a ton of knowledge and uh, it made for a really awesome conversation. So I, I want to thank you again for joining us. Yeah, hey, I appreciate both of you all and and for having me on and giving me an opportunity to kind of discuss everything that's happened. It's, you know, it's been uh, about a half year since we last talked, so a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but yeah, this has been a lot of fun and I appreciate the work that you guys do and the, you know, the, the type of content that you're putting out, particularly on this podcast, trying to provide educational, you know, uh, content, trying to help people improve as traders. And, you know, ultimately that ends up being, as we've said, improving as human beings. I think that's really important important stuff because ultimately that's what it's all about. That's why a lot of us joined uh, FinTwit as it once was and, uh, or, or, fin x or whatever it is at this point and uh you know it, it's awesome and so i appreciate you guys a lot thank you so much for having me on i look forward to the next time absolutely all right no another awesome episode see you next week for episode 84 yep thanks again to markets and mayhem and see you guys next week our content is intended to be used and must be used for informational purposes only it is very important to do your own analysis before making any investment based on your own personal circumstances. You should take independent financial advice from a professional in connection with or independently research and verify any information that you find in our podcast and wish to rely upon, whether for the purpose of making an investment decision or otherwise.